Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to show number one. We are living in a surreal time, encompassing what is truly an omni-crisis of contagion, economics, and uh, social justice. Uh, I know most people feel a little helpless during times like these, but for creative people, I think these type of times allow you to dig a little deeper into yourself, uh, allows you to be a little more soulful, a little bit more clear in your vision, and maybe even a little more radical, so that when we come out of this, we will all be better humans and create better content and music and art and thrive. So part of this aligns with why I decided to launch my own podcast. I wanted to take my 20 to 30 years as a creative executive, a mentor and a coach to many, many brilliant artists and performers and reach into my network and have deeper conversations with these people who I respect immensely and I respect their talent immensely. So my first guest fits this description. His name is Tony Vincent. Tony is a music producer, a songwriter, a performer, and an actor. He has starred in Broadway shows such as Rent, Jesus Christ Superstar, and American Idiot. On the West End, Tony was the lead in the Queen musical, We Will Rock You. Tony has worked with various artists, including the band Queen, Green Day, and Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's not only brilliant, a remarkable singer, uh, and a lovely human. So I'm very happy to have this conversation with Tony Vincent. Enjoy. Today, I get to welcome my good friend and talented musician, Tony Vincent, for our podcast number one. Tony, I'm really beyond grateful for you taking this shot with me on my very first <laughs> show. <laughs> oh, it's it's a privilege. I mean, I our history goes goes deep, so it's uh, it's an honor to be here. Yes, same, same, same. So, I mean, it's an interesting time. I mean, it's curious now. You're in Tennessee. You left New York City at a very kind of interesting moment based yeah, on what's happening in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, how do you feel about all that being out of the city? What prompted you kind of to leave New York City and kind of settle here in Tennessee? Sure. Well, I originally lived here in Nashville when I went to university. So I first came here. I'm a native New Mexican. I moved here in 1991 and got a record deal with EMI while I was here. So that that sort of kept me here for about seven years. Um, it was a it was a central place to tour out of. You could almost go out for two or three days out of the week and come home and you could almost use it like the center hub of like a wheel, you know? So it made sense. But, um, when I moved to New York in 97, I just, I was looking for a bit of a more exciting artistic environment. And, um, and so that led to a couple different things, whether it was a, a record deal with Sony or on Broadway. Um, but my, my choice to leave New York last February. So this is about a year and a half ago. Um, 
it just, it made sense to me because I, I wanted to do two things. I, I wanted to return to doing music full time and I wanted to start investing in the talent of tomorrow in a musical theater perspective. Um, so I came back to Nashville and started a company called PCG Theatrical, which um, essentially is an artist development company that focuses on young people who want to make musical theater part of their life. Well, that's great. You know, I want to really circle back to that because, you know, I'm a big advocate of mentoring and coaching. So I'm yeah. really curious yeah. to hear what you're doing in that space. So let's go backwards a little bit. So you got here really sure. for the EMI deal in Nashville or was it more that you attended Belmont too, right? Didn't you? I did. That was the, yeah, that was the total reason that I came here was, was to study music business and copyright law and publishing and that sort of thing. And although I always knew that I was going to be an artist, um, from, I think the age of five, I, I heard a Beatles record when I was way young and I was like, whatever I'm hearing, I have to be a part of, this is too exciting. It's thrilling. It's, it's rock and roll for lack of a better you know, term. And, um, I was headed to, to New York or LA initially, um, when I was looking at colleges, because that to me was, um, that was music. It, music was in LA, New York or London. And I couldn't figure out how to get to London at that point as a, as a junior in high school. And, and New York was closer and New York seemed exciting to me. Um, I was visiting there ever since I was about 12 years old. And so it, it just felt comfortable in, in the, in its bizarre state of chaos. And, uh, and I thought that would get me to London quicker. Oddly enough is the longer I lived there, I, f I figured out that there was a much closer time, musically speaking to Los Angeles than New York to London, if that makes sense. Um, but but yeah, it was, I just, I heard about this program at Beaumont. It was very unconventional at the time. You know, this was way pre Berkeley doing this kind of curriculum and it was exciting. And I never thought I would ever be in the South. Um, it just didn't, it wasn't on my music radar. I mean, obviously music city USA was, but it was exclusively country music. And that was about as far as I ever, you know, wanted to be. So, um, when you're talking to somebody who's been really English and Brit pop influenced, you know, country music doesn't even touch that kind of genre. And so, you know, the South was never on my compass until I heard about this program. And, and it was, it was amazing. It was amazing because it was unlike anything else that was out there. The faculty was fantastic. It was a really small school at the time. I think there was maybe, gosh, there was under 3000 kids there living on and off campus. So it, it was a real intimate kind of situation. And I was able to glean a ton of music knowledge on the academic side of things, uh, on the business side, you know, and I was able to use their studio uh, in the middle of the night as a freshman to, to do an EP that wound up catching the attention of EMI. Yeah, it's definitely a world-class program. If people listening don't know about Belmont University, it's certainly one of the best. Yeah. And now, oh my gosh, I mean, I've, I've had a, t a chance to tour the campus and this is, you know, 24, 27 years later after I attended and it is it is epic. It is absolutely spectacular. Um, I think the tuition is probably five or six <laughs> times what, than what I was paying at the time. It's but spectacular it is, it, too. <laughs> but also, yeah, that's spectacular on your uh, bank statement. Yeah. But it's, it's great. I mean, the, the faculty is still spectacular. Yep, indeed. So question kind of coupled with that, because um, I'm kind of curious, yeah. this kind of goes a little sideways, but you know, as your parents kind of walked you through all this, you're kind of like, man, I'm hungry. I want to go to New York or London. 
I want to be an artist. What type of advice or like how supportive were they of you kind of taking like this path of like an artist? Fortunately, both my grandmothers were musicians. My dad's mom was like a big band singer and my mom's mom was a very heavily influenced, like I'm going to use this term in in the sense that it was, was, she was very country and Western. It was really authentic Patsy Cline, early, early Johnny Cash, Elvis influenced as a musician. And so um, my father also owned an advertising agency when I was growing up. And so I was always around some form of kind of entertainment as a career. Um, although my grandmothers didn't do it as a career, they still had enough of a, kind of a music involvement in their life that it seemed somewhat normal to my my folks, at least to my father, who was you know my biggest support. Um, and when I wanted to get into musicals because I thought that I wanted to be the best possible communicator that I could on stage. So I, I kind of utilized every outlet that I could, whether it was like a battle of the bands at high school or, you know, church choir or or whatever, whatever that platform was, because at that time I had no, I had no filter of like what was cool and what wasn't. It was just like, I just want to perform and I don't care what Avenue that is. And so, um, it just, it made sense to kind of experiment in all these different things. And my, you know, my father was like a big stage mom and he would take me to rehearsal and take me to band practice. And I, you know, he, he helped get me my first drum kit when I was seven years old and I mow lawns and he sort of met me halfway. And I bought my first Yamaha DX seven synthesizer when I was young and I started to get into programming and that sort of thing. So it, you know, he's always been a huge support. So it wasn't, it wasn't very bizarre that, I wanted to be an artist. However, when I make the decision, at least to kind of look at colleges, that was like a, well, you know, you have to get a real degree. And that's, that's another one of the reasons that the whole Belmont thing seemed so cool was because it ticked the box of like, okay, it, this appeases my parents of getting a, a legitimate education. And at the same time, I can still, you know, play guitar and, and, you know, get in the studio. That's fantastic. I love a family that supports like that. That's gosh, me too. Me too. I'm really fortunate for sure. Did you, I mean, look, you have this incredible instrument called your voice too. I know you play (laughs) other instruments. Did you actually, did you take vocal lessons of any sort during that early period or not? I, I didn't. The only like proper vocal training I've ever received was when I was part of a Broadway show or a West end show. And in that aspect, I, you know, I had a chance to work with, with Liz Kaplan, who is probably one of the best vocal instructors on the planet. Um, definitely domestically, but I'm, I will put her up there with anybody around the world. Um, she's worked with ridiculous talent, um, from, you know, Taylor Swift to Bono to, I mean, you name it, there's a chance that Liz has worked with them. And, and I wasn't a real big believer in vocal, coaching or uh, at least vocal study because I thought I thought that the Beatles could teach me everything. I thought that Lennon and McCartney and Roland Orzabal, Tears for Fears could teach me how to sing and and they did. And and I I kind of in a way arrogantly, naively and sort of pompously prided myself that I could sing really really well and never took a vocal, you know, class. However, I will tell you when I was part of American Idiot, which was Green Day's show on Broadway, and Liz Kaplan was our uh, kind of vocal, mm, 
not vocal director because that that wasn't the hat that she wore, but she was like our vocal maintenance contributor. So she helped cast members who were suffering vocally uh, from fatigue to repair to post surgery kind of you know stuff with their voice. And I just I it was like I boy I was so wrong in when you find that one vocal teacher who can totally support what you already do naturally it is it's transformative and i i'm kicking myself that you know it took me 29 33 years to ever experience someone you know definitely of that caliber you're you know they're no joke but even as a young person um i'm i'm a big believer especially because i i teach performance and i teach young people how to communicate on stage i would have given my right arm if i would have known what i know now right now there's a but, you know, that is a specialized space, and there are only a few great ones, Liz being yeah. one and, like, Seth Riggs, and, you know, there's a couple. Totally, totally, absolutely. Just the masters at it, you know, masters, yeah. masters, masters. So you graduated from Belmont, I assume. The EMI deal was here or in New York? Yeah, it was It was here in, in Nashville. Um, I, I didn't graduate, actually. I got Neither my did deal. I. <laughs> I <laughs> I got my deal right at the beginning of my junior year. So right starting my third year of college. And at that time I was touring, I was supporting a band um, who we shared the same management company. So essentially they put me in front of this band and this band toured excessively. And I'm talking like 300 dates out of the year. So I was on the road all the time. And, and this was pre- internet and i mean seriously although i had a website that was really archaic and 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 quite busted there was no interactive anything and there was no teaching if you weren't at the university you weren't in university in any aspect so i tried to do the dance of summer school and and that sort of thing for for several semesters and there just came a time where i was like music is is king right now in my life. And I can always go back to school if I have to, but I can't, I can't do this half-assed. And that's when I, I chose to just um, kind of put school on hold for an, you know, indefinite period of time. And I mean, did you stay down here during that EMI deal I, in Nashville did. or did you go to New York at some point? No, I, I stayed here the whole time. I did two records with EMI. Um, we had some pretty significant radio success. I think we had six number one billboard radio songs. But in that time period, um, you know, Nashville is, is, is still kind of an anomaly because it's such a songwriting driven community. You know, you can have a career as a songwriter. Um, but I wanted to be around something that was different, something that was really artist driven as opposed to song driven. And I, I couldn't find that here. And this was 95, 96, 97. So it was, um, it was still very country-esque here and it was a very safe environment. And I, you know, somebody in their twenties, I don't want safety. I want excitement. I want danger. I want, you know, something that is really heavy hitting. And so I wanted to pursue more of a rock driven sonic soundscape around me, you know? Um, and that's when I moved to New York and this was early 97, I think February of, of 1997 and wound up like three and a half weeks later, getting the first national tour of a Broadway show called Rent. And that sort of sent me on this, this sort of rock pop-esque theater journey for, for 18 years. Although I did continue to write songs and, and put out records. And I even had a deal with, with Sony, with Epic for 
about a two and a half period of time before MP3s really took their toll on on the majors, you know? Right. And I, I think I met you. It's exactly maybe, when uh, you and I met. Yep. About that time, right? Uh-huh. Right. I think Head it was 90, of 98. Tavel. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was 98. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you come to New York. I mean, you get a, into a touring company of rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jonathan. It was Jonathan Larson who wrote that. Was that? Yeah, that's was? exactly right. And yeah, he, I, he did. Is he still alive then, or did he already? No, die? he died right before it went to Broadway. I I still think that. Oh, wow. um I think he died. In, and your fans are going to correct me if I'm wrong. I think he passed away before it even moved, or even had the idea to move. I mean, I guess the idea was always to go to Broadway with it, but I still think that it was in its New York Theater Workshop days that Jonathan died, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I never had a chance to meet him, although I met his parents, um, who actually are New Mexico natives as well, which was kind of a cool hmm. um, coincidence. It's kind of um, funky. Yeah. But after after nine months on the road with the show, I was like, wait a minute. I moved to New York. I lived there for a month and then have been spending nine months on the road. And then I, I called the, you know, the company management and I said, look, I have had an amazing time, but I, I have to get back to New York. It is where I, you know, I set my sights on and I've got to get back. And I get a voicemail saying that we know that you want to leave you know, the road, something has just opened on Broadway. Would you come back to rent and do it in New York? And Mm. it was just like, oh my gosh, what an, like this was, it was just like the endorsing decision. Like I decided to go back to New York and this opportunity kind of supports that decision. Same role or different? I I swung on the tour, uh, meaning I covered multiple roles. um, And then I went back to New York and, and did two different lead roles in the show at different times. So I have a question because, you know, this yeah. is, I've spent so much time, you know, around music, entertainment, film in LA and New York. Yeah. Um, in Broadway, I'm less kind of versed on how things work. So how did like, like you've had some breakthrough shows and moments, mm. like how does that audition and like casting process really work in theater sure. and, and what, you know, there's just different metrics in film and, and let's say pop music versus mm-hmm. what they're looking for in Broadway because Broadway kind of have to have a lot of talent. Um, some of these other things you can <laughs> yeah. kind of slide. <laughs> you got to have eight shows a week. I was just going to say, you got to have the stamina for an eight <laughs> show week. You know, I, I have not gotten involved on the TV film side of things. It's not the kind of actor that I am. Um, that's its own skill set that I, I just have not ever chose to develop. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is, I'm going to say it's sort of similar to rock and roll, at least in the scope of getting a manager. I'll just put the manager agent component under the same umbrella. And once you get an agent, uh, and it's not the easiest thing to do um, in New York if you want to pursue theater, but they are the, they're the key holders that get you in to the auditions. And fortunately, our mutual friend, Andy Tavel, who is an entertainment attorney in New York City, he actually represented four of the original Rent members. And that, because of my relationship with Andy, is how I got an audition for Rent in the first place. So, I mean, it, it always tends to be the situation of it's, you know, it's who you know. And although I had to go through the exact same process as anybody else who auditioned for Rent, I did at least have someone kind of handhold me into the process. And, um, 
you know, like a manager who gets you into an A&R meeting or gets your A&R person to come see you play out in a club. It's, it's sort of the same kind of thing, but instead of seeing you in a club, you're actually going to see casting directors in, you know, a rehearsal space and you prepare sides for it. If, if you're that deep in the process, if it's like an initial audition, you probably come in with some sort of song that emulates the kind of feel for the majority of the music. If it's a pop-esque kind of thing, you'll want to do something that is an, at least kind of a known melody. You don't want to do something that is so known that there's a chance that they're going to hear the same song from 10 different people that day. That's, that's something you definitely don't want to do. Um, but you, you don't want to necessarily have to educate the casting director because they're not here to see if that's a great song. They're here to see if you can communicate. Can you tell a story through a song? Can you, can you feel comfortable in front of a folding table of very specific, you know, talent lookers, um, for, for their show, you know, and it's, it's one of those things after doing it for so long, for 18 years, I finally feel like I have the the history and the the advice that I can sort of impart into the next generation of talent because those people that are behind that folding table, it's very easy to get nervous and and hate auditioning. But if you can sort of flip it on its head of these people are not there to judge your talent as much as they are there cheering for you in the back of their mind going, God, I hope you are the answer to the problem that I'm trying to solve by filling this casting position. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that is such a, it's such a, it's a, it's a mental flip and it can change the way you approach an audition. And it definitely, it took way too long for me to sort of apply that in my own career, but at least I can try to cut down the time frame on, uh, on young people of tomorrow. Uh, wisdom. It's such an amazing <laughs> thing at this age. Yeah. Um, so something. you're in, you're in Renton, New York. How, how many yeah. years did you do that? I did it for about 18 months jointly with the tour and then went to New York for 10 months. And then I got a film of Jesus Christ Superstar, which we shot in London at Pinewood Studios, which is where they did a lot of the early 007 films. Very famous. And yeah, really historical venue. And then um, they were going to do the first Andrew Lloyd Webber revival of Superstar on Broadway in 2001. And he cast me as Judas. Um, and it was, it, that is really where my career kind of hit the accelerator was because of that one moment. Um, the show itself kind of got killed in reviews and our, our Jesus got, <laughs> got crucified many times over. Um, but myself and the, the actor who played Mary, really ridiculous singer and, and actor, we, we tended to, to be the golden people that our press chose to show and, and it just kind of was a domino effect. We actually used that show because, you know, when you're in an eight show week, as much as I wanted to do rock and roll, I'm spending that only, you know, solo night alone, not speaking and not doing anything. I mean, if you, if you know, you can talk to anybody who, who has tried to sing the Judas role in an eight show week and, and outside of singing on stage, you have no life. It's, you can't have a life because it's such a dem demanding vocal role, but, um, we used that as a showcase to record companies because I couldn't play out. And so that eventually led me to my second, you know, major label record deal. And, um, and then I spent about two and a half years writing with people all over the place from Stockholm to LA to, to London 
essentially everywhere except New York where I was living, funny enough. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, it was an amazing ride. And yeah. And that's every- directly with Lloyd Webber. I mean, you, you auditioned yeah. for him. He was integral to your being cast and all that. Yeah. I mean, he was him and I mean, obviously there's a team of, that was involved in, uh, the film that was not necessarily involved in the stage production, but Kevin Wallace was the guy who essentially was his right-hand man in regards to all of his theatrical productions on stage. And, and Kevin was a, a huge support for me. And, um, but of, you know, Weber makes the calls, you know, definitely when it comes down to the, to the finish line. I can only imagine. He seems like, at least at that time. I mean, you know, this was still, this was, this was a, such an amazing project. Not only was it, his first revival, but it was, it was so, Im, so weighty that he flew his entire company of really useful group from London over to New York to see it. And I think that was 190 people. This was a, an opening night was epic. I mean, there was, there was live women hanging from these long, long ropes. Like they were angels. They had wings on them. And they, so these were like live, <laughs> live girls as angels hang from the Hammerstein ballroom. And there was oysters and, you know, caviar and sushi. And it was, it, it, you know, you would enter if you were part of the company as, as an actor on this huge catwalk. Like it was, it was very rock and roll and way over the top. I think they spent like three quarters of a million dollar on the party alone. Wow. It was so the it was, revival. It, I mean, is that the TV, yeah. was it a TV or a film? Which came first? Uh, yes. Uh, well, the, if you want to go but like back in history, the Brown album, the Jesus Christ Superstar album, was just a rock record. It was it was just a, it was a concept album that was never put on stage. And then they did a stage production in London, and then they did a, I think it was nineteen seventy four or six when they first did a, a New York production of it. And so when I say I did the revival of it, I did the revival of the Broadway show, and that was in two thousand and one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. How long did that run? Gosh, it was short. Nine months, I think. All that work, huh? See, this is the the real beauty. This is the beauty of Broadway, man. It's (laughs) brutal, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know horror stories of they almost get their reviews and they shut down the next day. It definitely was like that in the, in the old days, you know, now you have a little bit more uh, financial support to get you through some bad reviews, but you can only kind of do that for so long. And so, and you just die. So you, you know, this was a very high profile thing, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. so this helped you, did it help your artist career? I mean, on doing your own records, was your profile large enough from it or was it just too short a run or? I think it was too short. And because even though I, I personally got really great reviews, Usually when some, when a show gets killed like that, it's very hard for even the lead actor or actress to come out smelling really great. You're associated with something that's sinking. And so, although, you know, it, it helped me land a record deal, um, it didn't do what, for example, um, I'm trying to think of another show and another actor. Broadway examples aren't exactly great with me of, of who can sort of transcend that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that your you know, the reviews definitely didn't help my trajectory. And it also though, for somebody who wanted to do a rock record, you know, the, the idea of musical theater 
in itself back then, this was in, you know, 2000, was still very safe. It kind of sort of is to a certain extent still, but, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a very fine line of, of being a legitimate artist in a rock and roll setting and being an actor. It's a, it's this strange dichotomy that I think is, is quite historical of like every movie star wants to be a rock star and every rock star wants to be a movie star. It's like this strange, you know, it's why Johnny Depp is in Hollywood vampires and why you see all these sort of cameos of, of rock stars from Steven Tyler to, you know, I don't know. It, there's a lot more, there's a lot more crossover now, but those, those crossover moments that happen usually are in the pop music genre. It's not rock and roll. And I wanted to do something that was more Brit pop, Brit rock, very Oasis sounding, very Beatles sounding, very kind of aggressive and, and kind of irreverent to a certain extent. Um, and that, you know, a lot of that probably was because I came from a really conservative home and I just wanted to say, fuck you to everything. And I wanted to be out of the box and, and, and and thought of as intelligent and and against the machine in some aspect but i can't you know you can't deny your past where you came from as much as you want to kick it away it's still it's that albatross that continues to either hold you down or you start to embrace where you came from and and to see what opportunities that would bring and i i did that probably too late to be a successful you know recording artist in that aspect Right. Now, the typecasting thing is uh, is real, folks. It's a real struggle. So, it is. You know, I mean, I is. wanted to be Liam Gallagher so fucking bad, and <laughs> but I wasn't. I didn't grow up. You know, I didn't grow up poor. I didn't. You were grow trashing up... things, <laughs> <laughs> right? Not poor my personality, <laughs> right? Exactly, or your or your family members, or whatever. Right, it's your own kin. Yeah, exactly. But it wasn't my personality. Although that that lifestyle, whether it was like Robbie Williams or you know. It wasn't, it wasn't me as much as I wanted it to be me. It just wasn't. And that was a hard thing for me to swallow. You know, when I got signed to Epic, they wanted me to be the next George Michael and I wanted to be the next, you know, Robbie Williams, that, that guy who was screw the system and, and kind of do it your own way. But that wasn't it. And that probably cost me being held on to, to do a really successful record. Right. Probably so. That makes sense. So uh, how do you um, return to London mm. and not only return to London, but return in a very big way? Yeah. We will rock you and yeah. Queen. How did that uh, tell us that that's going to be a great story and it had to be very competitive. And- it's a very funny story. Um, it was competitive. It was competitive to the sense of they – they, the band, had been trying to do a musical with with Robert De Niro financing the thing, um, jo- or I should say jointly, with Tribeca Films and um, The Queen Machine. They wanted to do a musical, and they didn't exactly know what that meant. They didn't know if they wanted to do something that was based around Freddie's life or the story of the band. They didn't know, and they had been through so many incarnations, and I'm talking for like six or seven years. Um, ironically, I was writing in London with a few people for my record with Sony, and I get a call from my theatrical agent saying, hey, they're taking auditions, they're taking video auditions for this Queen musical that's going to happen in London. Would you be interested in videoing yourself and, and you know, self-submitting? And I said, well, I'm here. 
right now um, in London. And they're like, wait a minute. Um, let me let them know that. And so this was right on Christmas break um, in 2002. Maybe it was maybe it was late 2001, um, 2002. It's a little bit hazy on, on the, the time frame. But nonetheless, it was right during Christmas. I get a call to go to a rehearsal space and audition for the music director, a guy named Mike Dixon. And this girl comes in to sing with me who wound up being my co-star in the show. And from what I understand, they had been auditioning this show domestically in England as a whole. And I'm talking Scotland, Ireland, the whole UK entirely to find somebody who could act and sing, not like Freddie, but could sing Freddie stuff. And they just, they were like, we got to go to America, I guess. We can't seem to find that thing that we're looking for. And that's why they opened it up to, to anybody in America. And I, it was again, right place, right time. I sing for Mike and I sing with this girl. And then the next day after Christmas, which is boxing day, I get called back. That's when my callback was. And I walk into this rehearsal space with the guitar because I was on my way to Heathrow to fly back to New York. And there's Brian and there's Roger looking like he had a great night, uh, and the and the basically the creative team for We Will Rock You. I think Arlene Phillips, who was the choreographer for the show, was there, um, and I sang, and it was it was very surreal because the girl that I sang with the day before, or excuse me, the the two days before, the day before Christmas, um, it was a really unique sonic blend vocally, and it just worked really really well, and they heard it and. It was almost a done deal there, although I didn't get the call for, I think, another two weeks where an actual um, contract was sort of sent to my agent saying, we want Tony Vincent to be the Galileo for the first company of We Will Rock You. I mean, were you, I mean, walking into a room like that, clearly, I mean, were you stunned to see Brian and Roger sitting there? I mean, it was I'm, unexpected, I'm gonna say I <laughs> Well, I'm going to say something that's probably going to be, people are going to roll their eyes. Even though I, I'm such Go ahead, an Anglo- Liam Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not irreverent. It's just it's it's naive in the sense of <laughs> even though I'm like a huge Anglophile, I was never a Queen fan. So I didn't know right. just how fucking huge this band was. I was, you know, I was into Radiohead and I was into Manson and, and alternative bands, and Queen seemed it came a little before me in the sense of their radio success. And at that time, I was listening to pretty heavy metal. Um, so Queen was not exactly on my radar. And so when I walk in and see, I obviously understand who Brian was. I knew who he was as a guitar player, being a guitar player. But I didn't exactly understand the weight of it until I joined the company. And then I was asked to perform with Queen on several occasions publicly, including... Uh, Queen Elizabeth's 50th anniversary on the throne from Buckingham Palace. And people have to understand the context of this too. I want to get to that because that's, (laughs) that's like a mind blowing. That was a, that was the longest, the longest, shortest seven minutes of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And I do want to talk about that, but I, I think for listeners to put it in context, you know, there was no queen movie. There was no Adam Lambert at this time. Right. Um, 
So you really wouldn't know the scope of this band. I mean, until you got to the UK and then right. this thing opening because, on know, the West End. I mean, I saw you in this, fortunately. I was, you were nice enough to invite me. I, I saw you perform in this. You were yeah. remarkable. Um, nice. And the intensity and the energy around this band, that are, it's just stunning. It was stunning. The thing, the thing that I learned as I, as I spent a lot of time with Brian and just sort of the, the queen hierarchy, for lack of a better word, I, I realized that in America, they were big, but globally, they were, they were bigger than the queen herself. They were, this, they, were a, they were a movement that didn't ever die. And in America, they had radio success, but they weren't like royalty where they were everywhere else on the planet. So I was really caught by surprise, which is probably a great thing because I didn't go in thinking that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm singing in front of uh, Tom York this morning. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't that. It was like, oh, I'm going to another audition for a musical that, oh shit, could actually bring me to London. That was exciting to me. It was the fact that I was actually maybe going to get to live in London, which was my dream from a young boy. That was my excitement. It wasn't that I was going to be in a musical on the West End because it was rock and roll to me. It wasn't theater. So the fact that it was honest music, it was rock and roll and pop music that I would be singing, that was exciting. But it was, to me, it was just, it was London. It was it for me. Right. How long did that run last? <laughs> My time with it or how long did that show yeah, last well, on the, the West End? the show lasted, right? How long, was, how long were you involved? I was involved in the first year and a half of that show before going, you know what? I got to go home and make a record. I got to do my own music again. But that show wound up lasting 15 years on the West End. Right, right. I think it was the fourth longest running West End show in the West End history. That was a big deal. I think it was a big deal. Big deal. Big deal. So, and part of this big deal, this Queen Elizabeth's Golden Jubilee performance that you did. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that thing's just mind blowing to me. I mean, there, what was there? A half million people, a million people in Hyde Park. There, what, what was going on there? There was a million people. There was 12,000 people that lottery ticketed to get into the garden at Buckingham Palace. So there's 12,000 people in front of the stage, uh, including the royal family. And then there was a million people in and around London at Hyde Park. They had these huge. Just, I don't know what you want to video call them, screens. movie yeah. screens, video yeah, screens yeah, yeah. or whatever it, you know, they had it at St. James park. They had it at Hyde park. And so a million people were watching it in real time, but globally it was also televised. And they say that between 200 and 250 million people were watching this in real time. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the most famous unknown person that nobody oh. knows to the day. But I mean, it was, it was unbelievable because I'm, I'm sharing the stage with, Annie Lennox and Eric Clapton and Ozzy Osbourne and Phil Collins is playing a second set of drums for, for me and Queen, you know, so Roger's there, Phil Collins is there. And, th but I'll tell you the fact that I can make this last statement is, is mind blowing to me. It was a huge honor to be asked to perform with Queen. But when I was four or five years old and I heard Hard Day's Night and it was McCartney, 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 my whole youth. And that's why I'm here talking to you today. I get to sing Hey Jude with Paul McCartney at the end of that night. And that, to me, was like, if it all ends now, it's okay. It's okay. That's pretty brilliant. Pretty um, special. Pretty, pretty brilliant. special. And the two Queen songs, what did you do? We Will Rock You and Bohemian Rhapsody. Which two did yeah. you do? Those are two. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, um, actually, I didn't do. We will rock you. I think was sung by a guy named Will. I'm spacing on his last name. He was a big TV pop winner. Uh, I think it was. It wasn't Britain's Got Talent. Was not part of that. I think it was whatever British. I mean, Britain Idol. Mm. I think it was called Pop Idol. Let's Will, talk about you. Will Young sang uh, We Will Rock You, and then I sang Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. That's that's not much of a task. Um, I mean. So I Paul McCartney is the highlight. You, you meet Paul well, McCartney. It was for did me. Meet- well, I did because the guy who wrote the script to um, We Will Rock You was good friends with Paul and Linda. A, a writer named Ben Elton. So he was a writer for a real famous uh, comedy sketch thing called The Black Adder. And then he became a, a novelist and a writer and uh, wound up writing the actual text for We Will Rock You. And because of his association with Paul, he obviously was at the event, at the concert, and basically ushered me over to meet Paul. Yeah. Crazy. And Crazy. so meeting the queen was maybe second to that, or did that even occur? Well, she, or did they keep well, them all did. away? No, she came and met all of the artists who performed that night in a long line. So she, you know, we, we couldn't touch her. She just came and said thank you to everybody, made a point to just, you know, pay, you know, I guess, joint respects, allowed us to pay our respects to her um, and, and thank her for inviting us. And that was that. Was that. And then it was over. and. And it was back to another eight show week right. the following day. You know, that was our, that was our day. Yeah. These are seminal things though, you know, in your life. I mean, something like that. Oh, sure. I mean, opening in the West end, I mean, dream for a boy from New Mexico to end up in yeah. London doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's mind blowing. Um, and then, you know, you end up an American idiot too, which is kind of a highlight. Um, oh, I'll t- that was one that, yeah, that was one of the most creatively, fulfilling experiences beyond the fact that it was off. I mean, the way that Billy Joe allowed that show to be structured because he was, he was incredibly hands-on in the whole process was that it was unapologetically rock and roll. Our musicians were total, total aggressive players and very, very talented. And, and, you know, when we made a cast album, Green Day was our band and we spent time and this is, this is the, one of the big issues that I have being a producer in, in the record making world is that most of Broadway's, I think they, they sell themselves short because they don't apply a proper budget for a cast recording. They, they make their cast do it in and around their performance schedule. They don't take time to actually record great sounds and the best vocals, and they don't spend money on getting the best mix engineer for the thing. And I'll tell you, I'm, I stand behind that uh, the American Idiot cast recording is possibly one of the best Broadway records ever recorded. Go listen to it. I, I, and it. And it frankly has nothing to do with my involvement with it. It's just that Chris Dugan, the engineer, of that record and Billy Joe Armstrong made sure that that thing sounded fucking amazing. And it does. It is such a beautiful record. And the fact that they had already toured on, on the American idiot record for themselves for, I don't know, four or five years alone, those songs were so in their bodies that they could play that stuff in their sleep. So when they approached doing a record 
again of of material that they had played for night after night after night for years. I their playing on it was better than the actual American Idiot record. You know, even though Butch Vig is a ridiculously talented guy who produced the American Idiot project, um, I I don't know, man. There's something that's really special about that Broadway recording. It's really and, unique, really unique. And I think kind of a mutual friend, um, Tom Kidd. Did Tom do something like yes. the arrangements or something? He did. Holy shit. So talented. Tom is so crazy, good. right? Crazy. Oh my gosh. When you think those are just great pop songs and then you hear the, the vocal arranging of that stuff is just, it's, it's spectacularly dark and haunting and, broken it's just so so beautiful it's those are the reasons that i do rock and roll still it's those moments that just it's it goes beyond this is ear candy or this just sounds good it's stuff that hits you in a place that you can't really articulate that's what to me music is about it move it moves me to this day i go and listen to that record or these iconic projects that mean so much to me now it, it it's why i continue to do music it's why i love rock and roll it's it moves me. It's, I can't help it. I love that. Love the passion, my friend. So we're kind of getting down on time. So I'm just going to kind of loop around here. You have two beautiful children. You shared some photos this week, which I loved. And let's just, um, as we kind of exit here, um, yeah. you know, why don't you give some information regarding uh, PCG Theatrical um, and how they can find you and uh, kind of what it offers up? Sure. It's very easy to find us. PCGtheatrical.com. And that's P as in Peter, C as in cat, uh, G as in go, theatrical.com. Um, it is a customized one-on-one artist development program that I uh, and another gentleman uh, run um, for young people who want to make musical theater their career. And so it's unlike anything out there. It's not a conservatory curriculum. This is based around the individual and their needs. Um, prior to COVID, everything took place in Nashville. And they would come in, uh, when I say they, the young person, the client, and their parents would come in to Nashville. They would spend about two and a half days here. It would be a full court press to spend as much amount of time that we could with that young person, whether it was vocal instruction or uh acting coaches or uh, choreography and and intensive dance, uh, performance coaching, communication, how to actually deliver a something that is compelling and inviting to an audience member into their world. All of that kind of thing is very hands-on and it's actually successfully moved into an online format. And again, the the website at pcgtheatrical.com is, is the best way to get that information over to you. And we will you basically just fill out your name, a contact number, email address, and um, and we will reach out to you. It's as easy as that. Fantastic. And, yeah. It's Dude, great. That's the, that's the real deal, hearing it from you. So, I mean, and they're going to get – that's amazing access for anyone to have, have access to your experiences and, you know, no, and very, to your talent, a, by the way. So. Well, it's a real – I mean, it's time that – you know, and maybe it's because I have had, I've had children now. But I tell, I tell you – I taught with a nonprofit for a couple of years when I wasn't on stage, and it is—it's so gratifying to see the penny drop in a young person's life that where that where they finally go, oh, that's it, I get that. That's what I need to work on. You know that there's something that's just really self-fulfilling, and it—it's it, empowering, and it—it just—it—it's this sort of—it's this cycle that kind of feeds itself, and it—it 
it's something that I've grown to have a real love for because it's no longer about me. It's about my kids and it's about, are we going to bring real, real talent to a Broadway stage? If I can help make that happen, sign me up. Right on. So people take advantage of this. It's an amazing opportunity. Um, Listen, I can go on for hours here, to be honest. I have a a billion more things to ask, but we're going to (laughs) wrap because of time. And um, I'm extremely, extremely grateful for you spending some time with me today and talking about this. Hey, it's truly a pleasure. I I appreciate your friendship and and any time I can encourage um, people is, is, you know, it means a great deal to me. Indeed. I love that. All right, folks, Tony Vincent. Thanks, Tony. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe you even learned a little bit. We post new shows on a weekly basis. I hope you subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts.